Welcome to Lung Cancer Concert, the podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, a global organization dedicated to research and practice advances in thoracic oncology. You can find all of our podcasts on SoundCloud and at islc.org in the newsroom. We are your hosts, Dr. Narjus Flores and Dr. Stephen Liu. Hello, and welcome to Lung Cancer Concert, the official podcast of the ISLC. This is Dr. Narjus Flores, Associate Director of the Cancer Care Equity Program and a thoracic medical oncologist at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. And this is Dr. Stephen Liu, Director of Thoracic Oncology at Georgetown University. In this episode of Lung Cancer Considered, we'll discuss some of the highlights from ASCO 2023. We are joined by two expert thoracic oncologists who are also members of the Lung Cancer Planning Committee this year to help review some of the data and offer their own perspective. First joining us is Dr. Sarah Goldberg, an Associate Professor and Division Chief of Thoracic Oncology at the Yale School of Medicine. Sarah, thanks for joining us. It's great to be here. Thank you. We're also joined by Dr. Bansi Balchetti, Professor of Medicine and Director of Thoracic Oncology at NYU Lagoon's Cancer Center. Bansi, we're glad to have you here with us today. Yeah, thank you so much, Joanna. Just uh, glad to be here. It's a big meeting. Uh, we did a lot of walking. The conference center is always much bigger than we expect. It's always good to see people. I think we can jump right into to some of the, the bigger stories coming out of ASCO. And I think the biggest was the survival data from Adora that was presented on Sunday at the plenary session by Sarah's colleague, Dr. Roy Herbst. Sarah, maybe you can summarize that presentation for us and explain its impact. Absolutely. It was worth the walk to uh, listen to the uh, the plenary at ASCO this year. Um, I thought it was really such an important study and such a fantastic presentation, not just because it was by my colleague, Dr. Herbst, but it's just so important. To, to finally hear this data after waiting so many years for it. So this is a, the presentation was on the ADORA trial. It's a, um, a randomized phase three trial for patients with EGFR mutant non-small cell lung cancer who have early stage disease and have had disease resection. So it's stages 1B to 3A uh, EGFR mutant lung cancer. And so after a section, they were allowed to get chemotherapy, although it wasn't required. And then patients were randomized to three years of adjuvant osimertinib um, at kind of our standard dose that we typically give, 80 milligrams a day or placebo for those three years. And so we heard about this study a few years ago now at, at ASCO um, at a different plenary. And the disease-free survival results have been presented and, and published. And we, in the Osimertinib has been approved based on those disease-free survival results, but this presentation was about the overall survival results. So a really important endpoint, obviously, for any study, but especially an adjuvant study where we're going for a cure. So the study enrolled 682 patients between 2015 and 2019. They had a, a median follow-up of almost five years, which is is important to know when you're thinking about um, long-term follow-up. And the the overall survival hazard ratio was, an, I thought, an impressive 0.49. If you look far out at the five-year mark, when we often will think about, you know, are these patients cured? But we could discuss whether that's relevant when you're giving them a TKI. But what we see uh, in this study is that about 10% more patients survived to five years, uh, the 88% versus 78% with uh, placebo. And so we also saw a few different subgroups, different stages, um, different EGFR type 
um, the XN19 versus LE58R, whether patients got chemotherapy or not, and there really was a benefit across all of those those uh, subgroups. I think also important when we think about um, whether we should be doing this in practice is we think about, is it better to give adjuvant osimertinib or is it better to, to not and then just treat if someone recurs? And so they did look at what patients, what happened with patients after recurrence. And so 184 of the patients on the study did have subsequent treatment. For the most part, it was EGFR TKIs, as you can imagine. And about half of those patients had osimertinib. So this is one thing to consider when you're looking at the survival data is that less than half of the patients who recurred did receive osimertinib. So it's in some ways not quite a fair comparison because some of those patients didn't receive osimertinib. But I still think such an important study really helps to, I think, confirm that this is the appropriate treatment for patients who have EGFR mutant disease after resection, again, stages 1B to 3A. I, I agree. I think it really is practice reaffirming. And you know, all of us had sort of posed our guesses as, as to what the survival hazard ratio would be. We knew it was positive based on press release. We knew that it was significant, um, but we didn't know what that meant. But I think 0.49 beats most people's guesses. Let me ask a quick question, Sarah, though. This was chemotherapy first and then osimertinib. Chemotherapy allowed, encouraged maybe, but not yeah. required. How big of a role is chemotherapy now for your patients? Is that still important in light of this profound benefit from TKI? That's such an important question. So again, this study did not require chemotherapy, but I think, I forget the exact numbers, but most patients did have chemotherapy on the study. Mm-hmm. It's not a study that randomizes patients to chemo or osimertinib. So you really can't, you can't say that now osimertinib is replacing chemotherapy. I think chemotherapy is still important. We know that there's a survival benefit with adjuvant chemotherapy, at least for patients with stage two and three disease. So I still think that the the default should be to consider chemotherapy and offer chemotherapy for most patients with stages two and three disease. Obviously, there are some patients who don't want chemotherapy or who aren't eligible for chemotherapy. And in those cases, I, I would feel very comfortable skipping the chemo and going straight to osimertinib. But I think in patients who are otherwise eligible for chemotherapy, I think it still is really important to give the chemotherapy and then consider the the adjuvant osimertinib. Maybe one day we'll have a study that tells us otherwise, but I think for now it's still important. Yeah, I agree. Uh, Vamsi, what was your reaction to these Adora survival data at ASCO? No, I agree with your opinion, sir, Stephen. And, uh, you know, uh, I wasn't surprised, but however, I think, uh, you know, the magnitude of the clinical benefit here at the OS with a hazard ratio of 0.49, I was indeed surprised there. Like, I thought it was going to be a modestly positive study, but, um, you know, I think there was a pretty significant improvement in overall survival here. And uh, this is certainly going to be standard of care and and it hasn't really changed my practice it has reinforced my practice and i know there were some skeptics you know who were hesitant to give uh in the adjuvant setting without overall survival data so i think this would actually uh, allay any concerns uh here i think there's clear benefit here to adjuvant osimertinib yeah i'd agree now just let me go to you uh, you know is adora now our standard of care in this setting well, it is a standard of care, and it was a standard of care in my clinic. So today, I think the oldest patient I saw in my clinic today was 45. So for these, you know, particularly younger women that have been lucky to be diagnosed with early stage, as many younger patients are diagnosed with advanced stage, this is an opportunity for them. You know, the only lead 
longer, but we also know about CNS recurrence. So this solidifies the role. I actually consented a patient for Adora today as a standard of care. And I can tell you one thing also that it may not be accounted is that my patients feel like they're doing everything they can to reduce the risk of the cancer coming back. The hazard ratio is there. The overall survival data is there. I think we'll still, I would still would like to have more long-term follow-up, of course, but it is the standard of care. So moving on a little bit away from EJFR, another oral presentation uh, that had a simultaneous New England Journal of Medicine publication was Kino 671. Bansi, could you walk us through those results presented by our, our own ISLC president, Dr. Heather Weekly, and your interpretation of the data? Uh, I do call this uh, regimen the sandwich approach, neoadjuvant immunotherapy and then adjuvant immunotherapy. Absolutely, no, just uh, happy to do that. And here, like I think uh, uh, the perioperative space in lung cancer in general is kind of really fascinating uh, lately. We have two adjuvant approvals of immunotherapy, you know, recent approval of pembrolizumab, and we uh, had approval for itizolizumab uh, prior to that. And uh, we had also approval of uh, chemo and nevo uh, based on the checkmate 816. So now, we also recently heard the data from another perioperative regimen, Asian at AACR. And at ASCO, we hear uh, positive results from Keynote 671. So Keynote 671 uh, included patients who had resectable stage 2, 3B, uh, non-sponsored lung cancer. And patients uh, got up to four cycles of uh, platinum doublet chemotherapy or platinum doublet chemotherapy with pembrolizumab. And uh, they all went to surgery, and then post-operatively, uh, they got uh, adjuvant pembrolizumab or placebo. So this is the first look at the data. The primary endpoint uh, here was uh, uh, event-free survival. And the study met its primary endpoint, and the one-year landmark EFS rate was 73.2% in the treatment arm versus 59.9% uh, in the uh, control arm. And uh, hazard ratio of 0.58. And uh, I should say the median follow-up was uh, 25 months. And um, so it was a pretty impressive reduction in the event-free uh, recurrence in uh, with the treatment with pembrolizumab and chemotherapy. The OS data is still not mature, but I think you know there's a trend towards uh, you know, better survival. And uh, uh, pathologic uh, CR was seen in 18.1% of patients versus 4% in the platinum doublet arm. And 30.2% uh, major pathologic response versus 11% in the control arm. So overall, uh, these data are pretty promising. And actually, they are very similar to what we have seen with Asian data. Uh, Asian had a very similar design with uh, durvalumab plus chemotherapy, four cycles. And uh, we saw kind of similar kind of trending data there with Asian as well. So this is really exciting. And I think the big question, though, is, you know, uh, how do we select uh, new adjuvant chemoimmunotherapy followed by surgery, followed by adjuvant therapy? And are there some patients who may just benefit from just going straight to surgery and having just adjuvant therapy without, without new adjuvant uh, therapy? And there may be some patients who need 
uh, new adjuvant therapy alone. Uh, and, you know, clearly we know that like, you know, the patients who have a pathologic CR do really, really well. And at least a significant proportion of those patients who have a pathologic CR may not need adjuvant immunotherapy. And also on the flip side, there might be a substantial proportion of patients who do not have a significant pathologic response or maybe no pathologic response at all, may need uh, escalation of data in the adjuvant setting. So there are a lot of unanswered questions here, and uh, but I think uh, we are kind of moving in the right direction. I think uh, I'm a big believer in perioperative therapy. And you know I think uh, patients receiving new adjuvant immunotherapy have more benefit from immunotherapy. And we actually know what the immunotherapy is doing uh, to the tumor and if they are actually kind of receiving any benefit from immunotherapy if you give it in the, uh, in the new adjuvant state. I, I agree with you, uh, Vansi, because it's an objective evaluation or response, right? And, and I think, uh, you know, also allows for those patients that may not have a very good response to, to therapy, but... I, this adds to the importance of multidisciplinary care and also testing at the time of diagnosis for biomarker, right? I think it's very important that now that we have neoadjuvant regimens, adjuvant regimens that are directed to a specific disease groups that biomarker is done, biomarker testing is done as early as possible. Sarah, is this a new standard of care once it's approved? Do you think the adjuvant portion or immunotherapy is important here? I think it is a new standard of care. I agree once it's approved because we don't have approval yet. But if it's approved, I think I think it absolutely could be a new standard of care. The question of whether the adjuvant portion is important, I don't know. I wish I knew because, you know, it's nice to be able to get away with less treatment for patients. And you know, we know from the neoadjuvant chemo plus nivolumab trial, that trial had a benefit with just three cycles without the adjuvant portion. So is the adjuvant portion necessary? We really don't know. I would love to see data showing me which patients it is important and which patients it isn't. Because I think that there probably are some patients that do benefit from it, but we don't know how to select them. So I think it is a new standard of care or will be a new standard of care, but how to select Neoadjuvant versus adjuvant versus neoadjuvant and adjuvant. That will be the the challenge moving forward. And hopefully in the next few years, we'll have some trials that help us understand that. But it's going to be a little bit of time until we really know if the adjuvant for, portion is necessary and for which patients. Sarah, in one question, getting a little bit off the script, for patients that may have oncoming mutations, BRAF, MET, ROS1, how do you feel about this approach for these patients? Yeah. That's a really important question too. I'll actually answer an easier one, which is what about EGFR? Um, <laughs> and then I'll answer your question because I think the EGFR question is still relevant and, and I think it's more straightforward. Um, so for, and this is why it's so important to test, like you mentioned before, why it's so important to test for biomarkers early before you're, you decide on upfront surgery or neoadjuvant therapy. For EGFR patients, I think Adora is still the standard of care. So even if you know you're thinking you might need to give neoadjuvant therapy for some reason, I still think those patients should probably not get neoadjuvant immune therapy, and you should be able to give because then you can give them adjuvant osimertinib. So that's why testing for EGFR is so important upfront, so you can really avoid the challenge of I gave immune therapy and now I want to give osimertinib. 
um, which can be difficult. For the, the question about other mutations, it's a much more gray area because we don't have ad neoadjuvant or adjuvant therapy that's approved for other mutations beyond EGFR at this point. We might one day, and it'll be an easier question to answer, but right now we don't. So, you know, th there's not, it's not a one size fits all, I think is probably the bottom line with this. In my mind, I think there are some mutations where patients just don't seem to get as much benefit from immune therapy, ALK, ROS1. There, I would probably be much more hesitant to give neoadjuvant chemo immune therapy. But other mutations are much are, are really unclear to me. Some BRAF mutant cancers really do well with immune therapy. The numbers are probably smaller than with other mutations. But I think there can be patients with BRAF and MED and others where there is benefit. So I think, again, it's a gray area where I, I'm not sure of the answer. And I think it's it, it's one of those those situations where it's a multidisciplinary discussion and you think about what what might benefit the patient most. But it, I think it could be considered in those patients. Thank you. And thank you for thank you for taking that curveball I throw at you. <laughs> uh, Stephen, what was your reaction to Kino 671? Yeah, I thought this was a home run. I thought these curves looked great. And I absolutely think it's a standard of care. You know, when uh, I think the big difference with the GN, while, you know, as Vansi said, there are a lot of parallels with the GN, um, you know, slightly different inclusion, uh, different surgeries allowed, different staging system. I think the big difference between a GN, which looked good at AACR, and Keynote 671 at ASCO is maturity. We've got double the median follow-up here. And now I think those two-year EFS rates are really much more stable and mean a lot more. And you know, I think that you know your colleague, Mark Awan, in the discussion, he sort of uh, alluded to a slight difference in the shape of the curve compared to something like Checkmate 816, where especially in those patients that didn't get a PATH-CR, maybe the suggestion that, that there's a little bit more of a plateau. Um, so you know, I will say that based on this, we, we've changed our practice internally, and, and I am giving uh, adjuvant immunotherapy after neoadjuvant here, and certainly when 671 is approved, that, that'll be my practice as well. So you know, the next wave of trials will really just be similar studies, and it'll be rank and file, and, and they'll all, I assume, be, be fairly similar. You know, in Power 030, uh, Checkmate 77T, we heard about Neotorch, uh, slight differences, but pretty same concept. I, I think that what we're really waiting for is some marker of minimal residual disease to, to hopefully allow us to make better informed decisions about who needs, about who needs what. Um, you know, but we like to use biomarkers to, to guide our treatment, and maybe we'll move on to another biomarker guided therapy. Uh, Vamsi, we saw the results of SWOG uh, S1929 presented by our colleague, uh, Dr. Nagla Karim. Can you discuss those data for the audience? Yeah, and speaking of biomarkers and small cell in the same line, uh, so I'm really excited about this study. <laughs> So, you know, as you know, this is a randomized phase two study by the uh, SWOG cooperative group. Uh, it's a trial looking at uh, this question of uh, Schnaffen 11 expression. And, you know, there's a strong preclinical data uh, looking at uh, Schnaffen 11 as a, a predictive biomarker for uh, PARP inhibitors. Uh, actually, in fact, not just PARP inhibitors, uh, Schnaffen 11 also predicts uh, responsiveness to chemotherapy. So platinum chemotherapy specifically. So this is a randomized trial uh, looking at extensive stage small cell lung cancer patients. And patients were tested centrally for Schnaffen 11 expression. And after four cycles of uh, the standard carboetoposide uh, and uh, etezolizumab, they were randomized to etezolizumab monotherapy or etezolizumab with uh, telezoperib. Uh, so um, 
interestingly, 79% of all the samples tested were positive for schnaffen level. So, um, you know, high prevalence rate of schnaffen level. The key uh, thing that could potentially uh, influence the results is like, we don't really know the impact of the treatment on schnaffen level expression. Most of the schnaffen level expression or all this, almost all the samples were actually from uh, pre-chemotherapy. And I, I believe uh, none of the patients had uh, biopsy right prior to study enrollment. Yeah. So yeah. there's there's some suggestion that SNAP11 could change with um, chemotherapy. And anyway, besides, uh, the, that's kind of a, a mute point now. But the study met its primary endpoint, which was a progression-free survival with a hazard ratio of 0.7 and PFS was 4.2 months versus uh, uh, 2.8 months. So it's a positive study. Uh, the, the OS was still uh, not mature and overall the, the combination was uh, fairly well tolerated except for the expected uh, uh, grade 3 anemia from telazoparib tel- and some thrombocytopenia but overall uh, you know uh, seems like this could uh, be a good proof of concept of course it's not practice changing but I think this could lay the foundation for future trials looking at SNAF11 and uh, uh, some innovative ways of trial designs incorporating PARP inhibitors and maybe even like uh, duration of uh, platinum therapy in patients with small cell lung cancer. I know none of us is, uh, are really excited about actually prolonging the platinum to uh, six cycles, but maybe in a subset of patients, maybe they will benefit from uh, intensification. So a lot of questions and I think a lot of exciting signals here, but I think uh, you know, this is a step in the right direction for small cell lung cancer with a biomarker-driven strategy. So I think I'm looking forward to seeing future trials here. Yeah, I, I kind of like the way you put that, Bomsi. It's a positive study, meeting its primary endpoint, but, you know, there's 10% alpha, the p-value is 0.056. And, you know, the clinical difference here, you know, 2.8 months to 4.2 months in the maintenance setting with no difference in survival. I really think in maintenance, you need to show some OS benefit because you're introducing talks. Yes. You know, if, if all you're doing is delaying progression, I don't think that's meaningful in maintenance setting. So I, it's a positive study, and I think it's an important study. And I think that you know, Swag and Dr. Cream are to be commended for enrolling the study very quickly. And I think, you know, I think you mentioned it was a proof of concept, and I think it shows that we can do relatively quickly a biomarker-driven salvage small cell study with central testing. I think that's a really important point. And so I think that's why this is an important study. I don't think we're recommending maintenance telezoparib here. That's not, that's not the point here. It really is a, a proof of concept that we can do these types of studies. But you know, overall, the, the difference here was modest. And the degree of Schleffen 11 positivity, you know, 80% seems too high. Um, but I do think that there were important lessons here. Very well done study, presented very well, um, but not changing practice yet. So we'll see what the the next wave of studies is. Yeah, completely agree. Before we move to the next subject, I really like that we are talking more about small cell, not only in, you know, war conference, but also in the main stage uh, at ASCO. So, you know, it is is time to also continue to put more effort in the disease. Um, A little turned here, Sarah, we saw a lot of new targeted agents being discussed during ASCO 2023. There were many posters. We encourage our listeners to browse as well as to 
listen to some of the presentations that you may have not because you were in a meeting or you were trying to make it from S103 to hallway E. Um, <laughs> but one of the other presentations we want to highlight is uh, the agent Sumbocertinib that was presented by Dr. Wan, particularly in the space of Exxon, EJFR Exxon 20. Sarah, could you walk us through that data and your reaction to it? I was excited about this presentation. This this wasn't just a walkover to see it. It was also on the it was the last session of ASCO after a, a long meeting. But it it was really I think um, exciting to see. So so the drug Sunvocertinib is um, another EGFR inhibitor. But the reason it's really exciting is that it seems to have activity against the exon twenty mutations, which have been really challenging to treat in past years. The last couple of years, we've seen a couple of agents that do have activity. We have two approvals now, right? We have amavantamab and mobocertinib. So we we now have some options for our patients in the clinic. But this drug, I thought, had some really exciting results. So the study that was presented was, was a, a small study. It was only 97 patients. Um, the patients were given the drug at 300 milligrams daily. But the, the important part here is, is that there really did seem to be activity. The response rate was 60.8%, disease control rate almost 90%. You know, with the exon 20s, it's, it's challenging because there are so many different types of exon 20 insertion mutations. And they, they noted that they saw activity across many different mutation types. They didn't go into too much detail on durability. The median duration of response hasn't been reached yet. But I think that the response rate of 60 plus percent really is exciting. It's, again, still fairly small. Uh, we don't have long-term follow-up. But I think a really strong signal that this might be um, might be a really good drug for these patients and, and maybe one day is something we can use in practice. The other important thing when we're talking about these EGFR inhibitors is the toxicity. So the, the drugs that we have now, amavantamab and mobocertinib, they have... They have more toxicity than we've uh, come to uh, be used to with osimertinib, in contrast. And this drug did also seem to have uh, some toxicity, the typical ones, diarrhea and rash being most prominent. Maybe not as much grade three toxicity as with some of the other drugs. The rate of grade three diarrhea was about uh, 7.7%. Grade three rash was only 1%. But quite a few patients did have uh, diarrhea or rash, but again, not not didn't seem to be very high numbers of high grade toxicity. Um, but again, I, I think this is an, uh, an active drug, and um, looking forward to seeing more data. Both, and actually, I didn't mention this, but this the patients that were treated here were after chemotherapy, so this was not a tri- treatment naive population. They do have studies of this agent ongoing in the first line setting, but we don't have that data yet. Thank you, Sarah. Where will you see this agent fit in your treatment algorithm for EGFR Exxon 20 if it is approved and available? I think this, you know, if this data holds up the response rate of 60% and if it appears durable, I think this could be a drug that that I would use in patients um, with the Exxon 20 insertion mutations. Again, as it was studied so far, it was studied after chemotherapy. So typically we think of you know, the Exxon 20 drugs is not being active enough to consider using them in first line off of a trial. And typically in my practice, I give chemotherapy first and then consider one of the the drug, the, the targeted agents. So that's how this, this study was performed is in the second line setting. 
I would love to see the, the results for this drug in, in the first line setting, because I think if these numbers hold off of, up of a response rate of 60%, that could make it into first line, first line uh, competition, right, where we really might see a benefit compared to chemotherapy. But I think maybe initially, as where this is all the data we're seeing, it might still be a second line drug. And as we get more data and hopefully some first line data, it might become a first line drug and, and replace chemotherapy like our, our other EGFR inhibitors with the with the more common mutations. Sarah, and I most agree with you because it is time to move target therapy to first line for yeah. EGFR exon 20. Sample size are small. So I know it's being the uh, optimistic, but being very careful as yeah. we increase sample size, you know, potentially some of this benefit will decrease. But, you know, this diarrhea and rash with these EGFR exon 20 drugs is something that continues, right? We see it with mobocertinib, the infusion reactions with amivantumab. So brings attention that EGFR exon 20, while it has the same name, the drugs and the disease is different compared to the traditional EGFR mutations. Yeah, I agree. I think both the... the um the results, the response rate, the the durability of all of these drugs, and also the toxicity make them just not not quite at the level of the of osimertinib and other targeted therapies that we we've been using. But I I think still it's been such a tough mutation to target, and we haven't had good therapies for these patients for so long that it's really really fantastic to start to see some good activity. And hopefully as the drugs get developed, and there's, there's several more in development now, it, we, it may be that we find drugs that do have activity with less toxicity. Yeah. Hopefully that's not too far in the future. As you mentioned, our current standards for on 20, really chemotherapy, you know, we have imivantamab, mobocertinib. Still a question about the role of immunotherapy in patients whose lung cancer has an EGFR mutation. And on that note, Vamsi, Dr. James Yang from Taiwan presented the results of Keynote 789, which tackles that question. Do you think you could uh, go through that study for us? Yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, I would start off with saying this is one of the most important negative uh, phase three study in lung cancer in a while. So all of us in our in the thoracic community, especially, we know that immunotherapy doesn't really work very well in uh, EGFR mutant non-small cell lung cancer. And in fact, none of us actually use uh, EGFR, I mean, immunotherapy in the frontline setting for sure. But also when patients progress on uh, EGFR DKI, most of us don't use uh, immunotherapy with platinum doublet chemotherapy. So this is a study, uh, which is a randomized study in patients with metastatic EGFR activating mutations. And uh, they looked at patients who progressed on EGFR inhibitors, and they randomized patients to chemo doublet, that is a uh, uh, carbopem uh, with pembro or uh, placebo. So the, uh, the study had dual uh, primary endpoints of uh, OS and PFS, and uh, was a negative study, as I uh, said. There was no difference in PFS and, you know, OS, uh, there was some slight hint of uh, uh, improved OS, but of course, you know, like uh, not statistically significant. So I think this is a very, very important negative study for a few reasons. You know, uh, of course, in the second line setting, uh, the study was done post-TKI. But as we all know, there were huge gaps in the um, comprehensive profiling, uh, as we saw from the U.S. oncology study two years ago at ASCO. Even in the U.S., 
a significant proportion of patients who have non-squamous metastatic non-sponsor lung cancer are not getting tested for even EGFR despite of having so many improvements in targeted therapy in this phase. So I think it's really important to highlight the need for molecular testing so that patients get the appropriate treatment. Patients who, if they do have EGFR mutation, they don't do well with immunotherapy. And also, as we just heard from the previous discussions we had about Adura, you know, even in the pre-op, uh, in the operative setting, it is really critical to get uh, mutation testing so they can get appropriate perioperative management. So if patients have EGFR mutation, the likelihood that they would benefit from any perioperative immunotherapy is very low, and they should really be uh, treated with the adjuvant uh, uh, osimertinib. I think these are, are good points. And, you know, even though patients with EGFR mutant non-small cell lung cancer were excluded from studies like, you know, White 9, Keynote 24, still a lot of us wondered, you know, is there any benefit to IO after TKI? Navamsi, how do these data impact care, change practice? Does this sort of seal the deal for you? Well, I haven't been using immunotherapy in the post-TKI setting, at least in the, uh, the immediate post-TKI setting. So uh, this just reinforces my practice, and I'm glad to see this data. Sure. We know the response rates are low. Um, you know, Justin Gaynor published that report years ago now that showed in the second-line setting, checkpoint areas give you a response rate south of 5%, but it's not a 0% response rate. You know, Today, Sarah, off-study, where does immunotherapy fit into your treatment algorithm for EGFR mutant non-small cell lung cancer? Yeah, and, and it's such an important point. You know, there's... When we think about the different options we have for patients, when we see an EGFR mutant lung cancer, I, I think we, I try to exhaust every targeted therapy option I possibly have. In my mind, I think, oh, I'm going to save immune therapy till later. But in reality, I actually often don't even use it. I think there probably are some EGFR patients that might benefit, but they don't seem to benefit. I mean, it's very low numbers, as you mentioned, very few patients benefit. And then even the, those patients, the durability is probably not very good either. So I, I, do, I, I think it could be considered in later lines when targeted therapy is exhausted. I absolutely would think, I know you said not a trial, but I would absolutely rather put a patient on an immune therapy trial or another trial, an EGFR, uh, you know, EGFR positive patient on a trial rather than using it off trial. I just really have not seen benefit. Yeah, that was interesting in the the keynote seven eight nine that in the PDL one positive there did yeah. seem to be a difference in hazard ratio, and um, you know a hazard ratio point seven seven. In fact, you know if it had been studied, you know if it had been powered just for OS instead of a dual primary, you wonder if it might have snuck over. But uh, clearly, that's not the way we're going. Um, I think some of the novel checkpoint inhibitors are being explored in this space. You know, our colleague Ben Creelin and Moffitt is really looking at cell therapy and sort of till treatments. And there were some reports of efficacy in EGFR. I think we're still working towards that to try to get something a little more durable. I think that's still our goal, but but I agree with you right now. I'm not too excited about the options that are available through standard of care. Thank you so much for all sharing your thoughts about immunotherapy in EGFR. I was trying to get my thoughts together because I'm in the same uh, space that all you are when it comes with immunotherapy, but I always had that patient that comes to clinic and says, oh, but I saw this drug on TV. Can I go on it? So sometimes it's just, it's good to have this data to say, nope, that's not the drug for you. So we also saw the results from the phase three lunar trial of tumor treating fields presented by Dr. Tiziana Leal. Sarah, can you tell us about 
this study, uh, how the results may have impacted care, and also the novelty as we're using a medical device compared to, you know, systemic therapies like all the other studies we have talked so far. I'll answer that first, that last question first, which is it's absolutely novel, right? We we haven't used anything like this in in lung cancer before. This is this idea of tumor treating fields. It's it's a vest that patients wear, and electric fields are transmitted through the vest, through the skin, and theoretically into the into the tumor in the chest. And the idea there is that the um, the electric fields disrupt mitosis. And this is the study that we're talking about is in patients with metastatic disease. So even though they only wear it on their chest, you might wonder how it could possibly work elsewhere. And I think that is a question a lot of us have. But you know, the the idea is, could this be an immunologic response that then you have you know, something happening in the tumor in the chest that then impacts disease elsewhere? So I think there really are a lot of questions on exactly how this this mechanism works. But that's the idea of it is it's a device that patients wear. So absolutely novel. Um, and it's good to see novel things, right? We have a lot of drugs that are being studied in clinical trials and some really successful, but a lot of, uh, you know, unfortunately negative results too. So it's it's good to think about, can we can we do something different? And so this, this trial, um, it's a phase three randomized trial and it, it included 276 patients. It was a second line trial. So all of these patients received chemotherapy and it was started really quite a while ago. It was started in 2016. And so a lot of those patients um, did not receive immune therapy as first line. They received chemotherapy, what we used to do. And so the study allowed patients to receive, so it was a randomized study to standard of care alone or standard of care with tumor treating fields. And so the standard of care was an option that investigators could choose between single, single agent immune therapy or docetaxel. So for patients who received presumably immune therapy first line, they would go on, they would receive docetaxel. And if they hadn't received immune therapy, they would they would then receive it afterwards is, is probably what happened in, in reality in the study. And so again, it's standard of care with or without the tumor treating fields. Um, the median follow-up was 10 months and it was a positive study. So the, the overall survival hazard ratio was 0.74 and the median overall survival difference was 13.2 months in those who had the tumor treating fields plus the standard of care drug versus 9.9 months with standard of care alone. And the three-year OS rate was 18 versus 7%. So if you look at the kind of that top line result, I think it is actually, those numbers are good. You know, I think we always want to see uh, better hazard ratio, you know, more of a difference. But I, I would say that that is the hazard ratio and the differences that we see in OS are clinically meaningful. I think the problem comes when you start to look at some of the details of the study. And so if you if you break it down by what patients actually received, when those who received immune therapy, that's really where the benefits seem to be. And so there the hazard ratio was 0.67 with a difference in median overall survival of 18.5 months versus 10.8 months. In the docetaxel arm, the hazard ratio was 0.81, and I, I believe that wasn't statistically significant. And so, you know, you have to wonder what what caused that difference between the, the, the two arms in the immune therapy-treated group. Is it something about the immune therapy? Is there synergy with the tumor-treating fields, or is there some imbalance that we, we don't quite know? But I, I think that difference is significant. I think it just leaves a few questions that I don't know that we have the answer to. They also looked at breakdowns in different subsets, and they saw that maybe there was a hint that there was a better outcome with the tumor treating fields in squamous cell cancer as opposed to non-squames. 
Um, they looked at other endpoints like response rate and PFS, and there did not seem to be a benefit there. We sometimes see that with different drugs where, or different <laughs> different agents or, or um, interventions in lung cancer where there, there um, is not a benefit in response or PFS, but there is an OS like we're seeing here. But I don't know. I always think that raises some red flags where, you know, why are we not seeing a difference in response or PFS, but we are an OS. In terms of the toxicity, the main one that was highlighted in the study in the presentation was dermatitis, where about half, a little less than half of the patients did have some form of dermatitis, although very low rates of grade three or higher. So, you know, I think overall it's, it's, really great to see something different out there, so a really different modality. And it was a positive study, but I think there's still a lot of questions that are unanswered here. And I, I think, you know, I think that there's there's additional studies that really need to be done to, to, to confirm and uh, that the result that we're seeing is truly a benefit of the tr tumor treating fields. Um, and just another question around that, you know, the study started in 2016. Yeah. And, and my worry is, you know, the standard of care evolved and many of these treatments didn't have immunotherapy. So my worry is that was the immunotherapy the benefit or was the tumor treating fields what we're seeing here? Yeah. No, I agree with you. I think, you know, the, the, with the randomization, it wasn't tumor treating fields versus immune therapy. It was, you know, it was it was the, the standard of care, whether it was immune therapy, docetaxel, with or without the tumor treating fields. But I agree with you. If there was some form of an imbalance where whatever, you know, some there was some enrichment of a population in one arm or the other, PDL one or otherwise, we we could have seen uh, the benefit in one group, but not necessarily because of the tumor treating fields. And and we don't use immune therapy second line. So it really is not relevant for, for our patients. Typically, we, we now use it in almost every patient first line, who unless they have a targeted therapy option. Um, so I, I think that this is really intriguing. And I have to say, I was surprised, but it's it's great. It's great to see a positive phase three trial. I just think there's still a lot of questions and it's not not quite clear how to to use this at this point. You know, it's available now, right? Tumor treating fields is approved for other cancers. And so it is it is available and out there. But I, I think in my practice, I'm probably going to wait to see some more data before I start using it in patients. And something to add to that, and uh, Bansi, before I get to you, is that some of the tools that were used to measure quality of life were no design for devices or tumor treating fields, right? So I think it's very important to take into account how wearing this vest 75% of the time can affect your patient's quality of life. Bansi, what were your reactions about the tumor treating fields data in non-small cell lung cancer? No, I completely agree with you, Nargis. And I think uh, uh, wearing this vest around is not, uh, you know, trivial. And I think uh, we saw in this study and also the Optune study with in the GBM data, like, you know, like uh, only a small proportion of those patients actually end up actually uh, wearing the full prescribed uh, uh, duration of TDF. But the other concern that I also have, unlike GBM, where like, you know, you have somewhat anatomically non-heterogeneous, homogeneous kind of a patient population here, I think uh, Sarah briefly alluded to this too, like, you know, how is this device going to work in patients who have like a liver mat or adrenal disease or bone mats? And there's so many anatomical variations and variabilities here. And you know, the vest is worn on the chest and, uh, you know, is it different for patients who have like peripheral tumors versus like central tumors? Uh, I mean, there's more questions than answers at this point. And uh, I don't think this is going to immediately change practice. It's an exciting 
Um, I hate to use the word proof of concept for a positive phase three study, but I think this is a, a, a situation where we can't really figure out how to incorporate this into clinical practice yet. I think that's a very good point. We need more data. The study took a long time to recruit. So something to take into account is that we may don't have data for a while. And I think after the pandemic, a lot of my patients and myself, you know, reconfigurates on our priorities, which could right. take into account this study as well. Right. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, I'm interested in, in things like pdl one breakdown and EGFR ALK status, but because the study's pretty old at this point, we, we're not going to get those data. Um, so I, I think we need to turn on a little bit more, uh, but I'm, I'm interested to see how that evolves. Now, Juice, it was a busy meeting. Um, any other studies that caught your eye at ASCO? Oh, how to start, but more than a study, I would say a trend, two trends I really like. One is the introduction of more than the introduction, just talking more about circulating tumor DNA. Um, Astrac 2516, talk about circulating tumor DNA, tumor fraction, and how to evaluate the disease, you know, with circulating tumor DNA as the patients get definite therapy as the patients progress on the disease. So I like that trend of continue to stop during treatment, use some of these emerging biomarkers to understand how the disease will evolve over time, not to specifically take any actions at the moment, but I think to prepare and to try to understand patients to a deeper level, like the subgroup analysis or call break 200 that try to evaluate, you know, these co-mutations. And, and I think the more we learn about co-alterations, the more we'll be able to understand these subgroup of diseases and the other subgroup, right? Lung cancer is no longer adenosquamous and, and aden adenocarcinoma and squamous has become more complex. And the other trend that I like is that I've seen more studies in lung cancer when it comes with the other aspects of care, not only therapeutics. We saw studies about financial toxicity with targeted therapy that including financial navigators in the clinic. And we also saw studies about sexual health and patients' quality of life. So while we're all talking about therapeutics, seeing our patients as a holistic, in a holistic matter, will allow not only that they live longer, but also that they live better. So two trends that I really like in ASCO this year. So, Bansi, any studies that you were impressed at ASCO 2023 besides the ones that we talk about? Yeah, I think uh, we covered the most exciting uh, and data that's potentially clinically pra practice changing. But there were like uh, other major trends, not just in lung cancer, but across the board. Uh, one that I think uh, uh, I was like really excited about it was uh, the ADC. It's like a lot of early data, a lot of early exciting data, even in lung cancer with ADCs. And I think they, we will for sure see more of this uh, data maturing over the years. And one, one in particular that caught my attention was a uh, small cell. You know, there was an ADC against a uh, uh, CES6, which is like a like a, a highly expressed cell surface protein in uh, small cell lung cancer. And there was an ADC ABBV011, uh, which is an ADC targeting the CES6. 
uh, there was some interesting data, like, you know, with response rates in the range of 25% in uh, highly refractory and relapsed uh, small cell lung cancer with a decent duration of response. So I think we will see more and more of these ADCs in the lung cancer space. We uh, know that uh, there are already some registrational trials, pivotal trials in the second line setting, looking at a uh, lot of ADCs versus uh, docetaxel. So I think I will see uh, some exciting data unfold in the next few years. Yeah, a lot of ADC data. We, we saw some of the first line data presented as well in the orals uh, yeah. from Dr. Goto. And uh, that's definitely a, a new class of drugs. A lot of EGFRX120 activity, a lot of new drugs in the posters as well. Uh, Sarah, anything else you'd like to highlight from ASCO23? I think maybe just two two other things. I think what everyone else said, I completely agree. There really was a lot of a lot of exciting thing. I was things I was excited about the EDCs as well. We're starting to see some some great data. Um, I think we talked about uh, you know trial with what, what did Nargis call it the sandwich trial with neoadjuvant and yeah. adjuvant immune therapy. There were other other studies that were presented in early stage lung cancer trying to incorporate immune therapy. And I, I, there, I was impressed by how many studies there are now that are, are confirming that benefit. So I, I really think what I took away from, from this and all of these studies is we really need to, to think carefully about how we're seeing our patients with early stage lung cancer. And that's not, ju- not, it's not just you know, stage three where we were thinking about neoadjuvant therapy anyway. It's stage two, it's stage 1B, and maybe one day it's stage 1A, I don't know. But I, I, I really think that that is, is, is like here to stay. <laughs> and it, it, there were several different presentations that really talked about how we use these drugs, the surgical outcomes, because I know that's a big concern for, for a lot of the thoracic surgeons, like are we harming patients by giving them neoadjuvant therapy? Um, but, but really trying to understand what's happening with these patients and who might be benefiting and, and how to incorporate that into practice. I think was really, really important in, in several different studies. You know, I, I want to, I don't want to embarrass anybody, but I also want to say that I was really impressed on the, the clinical science symposium on EGFR. There was a study of neoadjuvant osimertinib and, you know, I thought the results were very interesting, but uh, on the podium, uh, Dr. Jackie Aretto was presenting that as a, as a resident and just so impressed by yeah. the, the poise. And I don't know if you caught that also impressed by, you know, Dr. Colin Blakely, who I knew from residency, who was uh, her mentor and, and sponsor and really let her present that. I thought they both did such a great job. I don't know if you were there for that. I, I was moderating it. So I was definitely there. That's and right. I agree when she she was just so fantastic. And I was so tempted to ask her a question of how, how she's able to do this so well as a resident, <laughs> but I held back. Um, but she really was fantastic. I mean, those are the things why it's nice to go to a meeting like that in person to sort of see these things and watch them unfold. This is a big meeting. There are a lot of people, both in person and virtual. And, you know, I think the data we can get online, I think all of us are going to need to go back and uh, dig through the things that we missed, like Narjus mentioned. Uh, there are a lot of discussions on social media, but I think all of us enjoyed the in-person component of ASCO this year. Um, Narjus, you've been in a lot of meetings. What does that in-person aspect of the meeting provide for you? The in-person aspect, I think, is invaluable. And just as a side story, this was my 10-year anniversary of being uh, ASCO sister with Dr. Chino for Memorial Sloan Catherine. We met in ASCO 2013 when we both were medical students, and it was her first poster. And she was studying financial toxicity, and I was studying cancer health disparities. And we ended in the phase one poster walk. That's where they put our posters because there was no a health equity track or a health equity 
foster section. So going back 10 years now, seeing that there are health equity tracks, policy, survivorship, and support shows that we have come a long way and that, you know, it wouldn't have been, I wouldn't have met Dr. Chino if it wouldn't be because we were so out of place next to first in human studies. But we are growing as a society and as a group to understand things beyond uh, progression, beyond what is the next drug, and also creating tracks in a day for the need or membership. Um, I went with my friends to the daycare center, uh, the pumping station, stations. All of that has allowed members that previously couldn't have attended because they didn't have the childcare or they needed to pump in a bathroom. So I think in the last 10 years, ASCO has evolved in, in a very positive way to understand that we're all different, that we all have different needs and to incorporate women more in, in the women responsibilities that are in ASCO. And if you ask me one word for ASCO in person, it would be collaboration. ASCO is this brewing collaboration that when you get there, you're able to develop so many ideas. And my email today is like, oh, secretly back in our conversation. So that is priceless. And despite technology, you cannot buy that. Yeah, very well said. Very well said, Andrews. Bamsi, you, know, you spent a lot of time planning this meeting uh, on the committee. Why is the in-person component so valuable to something like ASCO? No, absolutely important, Stephen. And I, I think as uh, Nadia said, I think like uh, ASCO often for me is like a uh, you know, uh, the highlight of the year for me in my professional uh, uh, career. Like I think uh, all my major uh, collaborations and grants and all the greatest ideas came from talking to people at ASCO, not just ASCO, Worldlung as well. Uh, I think it's so important. Uh, these meetings are more than just a, a venue of uh, disseminating information. In fact, actually, I, I, I mean, I don't know about you, but I actually prioritize having the meeting with my colleagues and good friends over actually uh, sitting through an oral session because I know I can actually go back and listen to that or like actually follow you, Stephen, on Twitter and I get all the information I need on Twitter. So, um, so I think I really, really value kind of uh, the in-person aspects and being able to just sit down with colleagues and you know, bright minds across the world kind of sitting and talking about potential opportunities to improve treatment options for our patients. Yeah. I mean, this is where we we go to find out what's the next drug, what's the the drug that's still in development, but not in the trials yet. And and uh, there's a, a lot of information. This is sort of where we have to do our job. Sarah, what do you enjoy about the in-person part of a meeting like ASCO? Yeah, for me, it's really two pieces. One is what what others have said already, that collaboration. It's almost like a big reunion, right? It's like I see my my co-residents and my co-fellows and colleagues I worked with who've moved elsewhere. And it's just, it's so much fun to come back together and we're all there for a similar purpose. And it's really, it's really fantastic to see everybody and then, you know, making new collaborations and connections and all of that. So that, that is is amazing. I have to say there is something about sitting in those humongous halls and being one of so I don't know, thousands of people, it feels like, and hearing the same data right, you know, hot off the press, and hearing it for the first time that it's you know really ever been presented. I love that feeling. I, I, 
during the pandemic, when I was listening to ASCO, that it was amazing that it was able to be done so seamlessly online. And I was like, oh, this is great. I don't think I ever have to go back to in-person. But there is something about being there that is, I, just, I, I don't get the same thing from just listening to it. It's nice that we have it because I definitely missed a few sessions because there are sometimes two sessions at the same time and I can't decide which one to go to or I had some meetings or connection or I got stuck talking to someone because it was too fun to, to break up. But um, but something about being there is is really, I think, special and just hearing that in this big important feeling environment for the first time and, and getting that that experience. There is so much more we can call cover. And I think we probably went over time by now. It, it's time to start wrapping up for this episode. But I want to summarize that when we go to ASCO, it's a time in which we all come together with the same objective which is to improve the care of all our patients with cancer in many different ways. Uh, the fight continues. And I feel, and I know you also feel, motivated to come back home and keep working for our patients of all different types of cancers, all backgrounds, because the time is today to improve cancer care. So, Sarah, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. This was fantastic. Yeah, and Vamsi as well. Uh, thanks both of you to the work that you've done. And, you know, Vamsi, thanks for taking the time to be with us here today. Thank you. Thank you both. And that's it for this episode of Lung Cancer Concert. We hope you will tune in the first and third Tuesdays of every month to give us a listen. Don't forget to like the podcast and to share with your colleagues and friends. We will see you at the next episode. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to Lung Cancer Concert. You can find all our podcasts on our website, islc.org, in our newsroom, or on SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rank, like, write comments, and share your favorite episodes with your colleagues. 